Well, welcome to another session of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And in this podcast, I'm joined by the boss. I'm joined by Marcus Padley himself. Just before we go, just remember that this is general advice only. Please just contact your own financial advisor, etc., regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights in this podcast. Marcus, now, now we're now we're here, and the, the two of us, we both grew up in a similar kind of environment in the '80s in London. What was it like in the '80s? Uh, '80s was very, as you know, Henry. There was an alcohol culture. There was a smoking culture. There was an addiction culture. I actually got addicted once to cup of soup out of a machine. <laughs> uh, we also uh, didn't have personal computers. I remember there was a girl who uh, once called us all over to show us how quickly she could do the whole of her job, which was just over a minute to enter data that the partners thought was such a difficult job. She had to be employed all day. Uh, there was also a dearth of re- oh, research was in its embryonic stages. Research came out of what were they called uh, management consultants who would write reports on companies for the companies. And they suddenly realized that this might be quite interesting or sensitive to the stock market. And they started writing what was called research which was really a management consultant's report on companies and publishing it to or showing it to clients. So research was embryonic. Dealing was embryonic as well, no computers. So we were writing tickets, red and blue tickets for buys and or sells and buys. Everything was done by hand. Commissions as well were rather glorious. I do believe they were 1.65%. You're probably aware of I remember the firm that I was with, and you you were with the government bro. I think Buckmaster and Moore, were they the government bro? And, and some of their gentlemen used to wear top hats and the gates of the stock exchange were guarded by little guys who were basically security, but we called them waiters, which went back to the coffee house days. They wore those blue jackets with the red collars, which they'd originally worn in the Jonathan's coffee house. That, that's exactly right. And, and I remember the broking house that I worked for, which was called Lang and Crookshank, affectionately known as Lang and Bang. I'm not sure why. Maybe I do actually, but maybe not for this podcast. They used to have clients that you had to be invited by one of the brokers to actually be a client. It was only for selected people. Kind of strange now when you look back on it. Everyone's Robin Hood going for clients like you can't believe. But in those days, you had to be invited by someone. And usually they'd been to Eaton and Harrow and knew the family and had gone back five generations before you could get an invite. Very different to these days, I would say, Marcus. What do you, what do you reckon? In order to trade in the stock market, you had to trade through a stock broker. You still sort of do in a way, but you can do it very automatically. Uh, but in those days, you simply couldn't deal in the stock market unless you uh, dealt through uh, a broker. And that was really how, how brokers trapped everyone. And that's why, in, why we could charge commission rates of 1.65%, which went up for a larger order, not down. And those, those were, were the days. were paying 1.65. Can you believe it? Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so it was a, a different era. As I say, it was um, pencils, no computers. Imagine not working with a personal computer. Imagine never seeing a color picture on your screen. Imagine never seeing a chart. Data stream was just starting to produce charts in those days in black and green. I go back to those times. There was no price discovery apart from what I used to do because when you started on the market floor you were a blue button we had various grades you became a blue button which was the the basically the guy right at the bottom of the ladder who got asked to go and find a price in Venetian tramways or um, something ridiculously like that and you had to spend two years as a blue button then you could take an exam that then you could become a dealer and you could actually trade as opposed to just ask a price 
And then from there, you could take an exam and become a member of the stock exchange, which was the, the pinnacle. And that was a silver badge. I forgot, Henry, you were down on the stock exchange floor where the uh, East End Barrow boys worked and all the people who couldn't get into Eton or the school I went to. Well, that, that's exactly right. I always consider Tunbridge one of the lower ones, just after Eton and Harrow, that's for sure. So, okay, let's, let's, talk, um, let's talk Turkey, because back in, in 87, we had the, uh, the 87 crash, and we're both old enough and ugly enough to remember that quite well. What, how did you see the 87 crash? I mean, there was a lot, of, a lot of froth and bubble going into it, and a lot of carnage coming out. How did you see it from your vantage point? Well, what we saw was a young dealer who had suddenly started writing red tickets, so red for sell. We had books, a red book and a blue book, and he's writing out red tickets, and he's writing them out and writing them out. He couldn't write them out fast enough. And after lunch, we came back, and there he was writing them out again, and it was just the biggest day you'd ever seen a stockbroker or a dealer do, again, at 1.65%. And the partners that night bought us all drinks down at Jonathan's and all whooped it up. And we came in with sore heads the next day and the guys started writing red tickets again. And the partners at this point started to realize, hang on, something was up. The first call went into the fund manager that ran the institution that the tickets were coming from to see if he had a rogue junior fund manager on his hand. (laughs) And he confirmed that, no, it was okay to keep taking the orders. The brokers then rang the other brokers, all their mates around the City of London, asking, are they seeing the same thing? And they were. And so the next thing you know is these guys are selling every share they personally hold, ringing all their best clients and telling them that they need to get ahead of the herd and start selling. And before you know where you are, that vibe goes around and everybody started selling. And this was just post Big Bang. For those of you who don't quite understand what the Big Bang was, prices had had gone onto computer screens by this stage and they had these stock jobbers up sitting in front of computers who didn't quite understand how it all worked. And the market just tumbled. And when people ask what caused the 87 crash, it wasn't a particular thing, and I describe it as uh, members will know, or when a dam bursts, you don't analyze the first drop that comes over the dam and say that caused it. That's why the whole dam burst. The reason the dam burst is because of a lot of water at altitude, which built up over a long period. And when you look at the FTSE or the All Lords in the year or so ahead of the crash, 87 crash, they were both up 100%. That's what causes a crash. And uh, all that happened was that one big institution, probably in New York, sat in an asset allocation meeting and decided the equity market's too risky, let's move to bonds, and will have told the guy in who's looking after London, sell half your equities, and that's what caused what we saw. And that's how a crash happens. It is simply someone decides to break ranks in the herd and it starts everybody else thinking the same way. And I think that's all that happened. People still look back to the 87 crash and say, why did that happen? I was an options market maker. And for many a long moon, every institution in the world had decided the market was going up forever and ever and a day. It was never going down. And they would sell us poor little options market makers puts all the time that would always go out worthless. We had thousands of these things. It was the easiest money. And my friend Greg McKenna talks about picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. We had thousands of these things, which was great for us. But unfortunately, when the cracks did happen, when the dam broke, 
as, as you say, Marcus, when that institution decides to just dump it all, that caused so much volatility because these institutions were suddenly getting longer and longer and longer. And the lower it went, the longer they got. They were getting absolutely killed. So all they had to do was to sell more and more stock as it went down. And we, as options market makers, were the only buyers. There was no other buyers. Everyone else had left for the coast. If it had happened, if the same dam had broken a week and a half later after the October expiry, which was a very big expiry, all those puts would have expired worthless and it wouldn't have been such a big problem in terms of volatility because those institutions wouldn't have had the same liability. So I, I look back on it, for me, it was the German Central Bank and that volatility that people just said, no, nah, it's going to out forever. We'll just keep selling these penny puts. And we were the only buyers in town. It was extraordinary. You and I could both name 20 reasons the market should collapse and 20 reasons the market should keep going up. But at some point, the balance changes and it changes because someone somewhere decides to act and it's usually a big institution. So somewhere in this, a Sydney skyscraper, in fact, it will probably be a New York skyscraper that will kick off the next sell-off, will make a decision for whatever reasons, there will be a lot of them, and everything goes oblong, including, obviously, anyone leveraged in the options market. Suddenly, the pain appears and the panic follows, and it will happen again. It will doubtless happen again. No one's being naughty. Everyone's towing the central bank line, and no one's putting up rates. We're all in this together. It is extraordinary time. I know this was a question you were going to ask me, but I'm going to ask you the question. If you could get into your DeLorean and fire up the flux capacitor, what would be the best advice you could give to your 20-something self? Is this to do with the stock market or myself? No, whatever. You go for it. Uh, tell your children to pursue what they enjoy. I had fabulous A-level results and could choose any degree I wanted to do. My brother had chosen medicine and I naively chose law. Now, law is actually a great degree. It served me well in general understanding. But what was I doing? <laughs> I did maths, physics <laughs> and chemistry at school and I loved it. I did maths, physics and chemistry. Oh, there you go. And we're both misguided stockbrokers. That's how far that took us. So, yeah, exactly. uh, but I, I would say, uh, uh, and everybody knows this, but guide your children to pursue whatever it is they're passionate about at the time and keep pursuing that path until you find something different. But to, I just went off at a tangent to do law. It was utterly stupid. I was also 17 when I went to university. I was so clever. I wasn't actually. It was just that's the way it dropped. I would also advise, and my son is doing this now, to take a year off before university to grow up. I shouldn't have gone to university at 17. So the advice I would give myself is do, don't do law and take a year off. And grow up and work out what on earth you're going to do before you commit down a path. And I got I got that very early decision wrong. That that begs another question then, because you mentioned this you mentioned this to me previously. Because you wanted to be a fighter pilot, didn't you? There are about three or four Mack truck moments, as I call them, in my life, which is where a, a Mack truck moments when a Mack truck's coming towards you, and you've got to go left, you've got to go right, you've only got a split second to make the decision, but you've got to make a decision and go and wear it the rest of your life. So four or five Mack truck moments, uh, and one of them for me was the RAF, my 
dad was a fighter pilot. I was brought up on RAF bases. I've lived on every RAF base in the south of England, even Australia. I grew up in Sale for three years and Germany and Cyprus, every RAF base you can imagine. Uh, I was groomed to be in the RAF. And when they asked me, do you want to be in the RAF? No, he didn't say that. He said, do you want to be a lawyer? Because it was for the university. Do you want to be a lawyer in the RAF? And I said, no. <laughs> Whatever. He he was just trying to work out whether it was worth investing in me because I was going to go in the RAF. Of course I was. I wasn't wasn't going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a pilot, but I didn't get the last bit out. So they rejected me. So, yes, uh, that's another bit of advice I give myself. Pursue the RAF. And when a guy asks you if you want to be a lawyer in the RAF, just say yes. And and I would have gone in the RAF. uh, It was my calling. My dad was in the RAF as well. He didn't He didn't fly fighter pilots. He was a navigator in, in Wellingtons and uh, Dakotas in Canada with the RAF during his national service. But it's weird, isn't it? It's, it's weird because you, you talk about the Mack truck moments, and I guess I had my Mack truck moment because when I was 17, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't go to uni at the time. Uh, I, I didn't see much point. I wanted to go and join the world and make some money. So I applied for two jobs. One was in advertising and one was in stockbroking. And unfortunately, I haven't heard back from the advertising one as yet. And then, then, I, then I decided that the, the market floor was the place I would want to be as an East End Barrow boy that I am. As far as you know, the changes that we've seen in the market over the years, I mean, it's been, it's been a, a, an amazing change in technology, in terms of volumes, clients, et cetera. What do you see as the, you know, the, the, the best change that we've seen in the market? And what's the, the worst thing we've seen in the market to some extent as well? Well, I'll give you the worst thing, Henry, by a long chalk, I think, is the Google algorithm is the worst thing that's ever happened to the world. Because people are now pandering to a bunch of programmers in Silicon Valley as to what content they put out. And consequently, we are now plagued with clickbait content. It has opened the door to the really the most dull writers you could possibly imagine. I used to write for The Age every Saturday and I had a new editor come on board. And he, in his youth, after a couple of articles, sent me an email. This is, this is Fairfax, who failed to notice the internet happening and it destroyed the company almost. And uh, anyway, this guy wrote me this, this uh, email, which I'm surprised they had email at Fairfax at the time. Uh, He wrote me an email saying, uh, Marcus, you need to use more keywords. There is an internet, you know. (laughs) Oh, you've woken up to it. Now you're telling everyone else it exists. (laughs) I've been running a business for 23 years using the internet, but you wouldn't have noticed anyway. Uh, this sent this uh, thing. So I I looked up the most important keywords in finance, and there were seventy five of them. And the top seventy five keywords in finance, and of course, what's the first one? It's Buffett. And the second one, Warren. And the third one, Warren. And the fourth one, Buffett. You just have to write about Warren or Buffett to get clicks. It appears. So I had seven hundred and fifty words. So I wove one keyword in every ten words and wrote this article and I wrote at the bottom and it was about keywords and how uh, you had to write for the internet and at the bottom it said this is possibly the dullest article I've ever written but it's almost certainly going to get the most clicks and that's the only article I've ever published it was the most clickable I think that's the most disastrous part of development of the modern world is that 
the talent, if you can imagine how many top quality investigative and other research intellectual journalists have gone by the wayside because they wouldn't lower themselves to write the crap you have to write to get clicks. I think that's one of the worst developments in the uh, modern world, and particularly in finance. These clickbait, clickbait headlines and pandering to headlines. There, there is a competitor of ours who employs young students, no qualifications at all, to immediately write up announcements. So when people type in BHP results, they go to that article. It offers no value at all, but it is a click collection device. And uh, qualifications of the people writing this stuff, it is clear it is adding zero value to what you need to know. And, and as I say, I think, I think it's a, a desperate part of the modern world and the finance world is that you have to wade through a lot of rubbish to get to something of value. What about what about the best thing? What's the what's the best change you've seen over the last? I was going to say <clears throat> forty years, but the, the best thing that you've seen—it's a long time now, isn't it? Since the eighties. Um, what's what's the best thing? What's the best innovation you've seen in finance? Well, the best thing is the same as the worst thing. It has to be has to be the internet, and it has to be the ability of people who might otherwise be lonely and ill-informed to sit as part of a uh, group community. I, I know I don't want to be a sort of predictable marketing of Marcus today, but um, our motto has become uh, building a community of better investors. The idea that we can communicate through this and, and all, every development, be it podcasts or webinars or webinars I don't really like, but podcasts and videos, our ability to create them quite quickly allows us to enter the living room of various people. And I know some of these individuals, we all think it's always a happy-go-lucky world, but it's not. There are a lot of people sitting in the in the back room trying their very best to make a living in their retirement in particular, and they need a feeling of community, being informed, knowing what's going on, not feeling alone, not feeling ostracized because they're not smart or clever or experienced enough. Uh, if there's one thing the internet has brought along, it is the ability for people to be on a experience uh, skills level with ev- with the most professional fund managers, uh, and that's uh, that's been a fabulous development. That investment becomes a enjoyable, passionate hobby with great tools. And uh, I, I spoke to one member who said, "If I die in front of my computer." I will have lived a good life because I love it. And there are lots of fabulous things coming through our screens. And that, that of course, is one of the one of the best developments, certainly for investors. For, I've got to say, for me, the, the worst development, and it's been a recent development, and I, I blame um, Mark Wahlberg, I think, for this, really, because he wants to ladbrook the world. And, and the world of investing has been gamified. It, it's been put on smartphones, and you just press a button, and you, it, it's been gamified. We've seen the, the rise of the Reddit meme stocks and all this sort of stuff it, it, it's we can't but help this hope that this doesn't end badly because you just get the feeling it is going to end bad there's a lot of people out there and i see them in, in other chat rooms not on our facebook group but in other chat rooms and and the level of knowledge and stupidity is just astounding do you think it is ever going to end though henry i think it's just going to extend isn't it? it's going to become more and more like that well I, you know I, I think it's partly our job and you do it very well is to is to educate people and make it so that they don't it's it's not you know it's not a game if, if you consider 
consider it a game, then you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. The punching the air kind of mentality. And it's all well and good until you know, when the market's a bull market. And it's all well and good till somebody loses an eye. And then it all goes very, very nasty. That's that's the problem. That, that's the thing that I think is a bit sad is that we have gamified the, the business of investing and, and trading. And everybody wants to be a trader these days. Give them a charting package and off they go. They're an expert in 10 minutes. It's, it is a lifelong experience. Now, we're going to jump back in the DeLorean again because I, I, I kind of like the DeLorean. Instead of going back, we're going to go forward. So we're going to we're going to cycle forward now five years and, and have a look at what the world looks like. What, what do you see the world looking like in five years in terms of the market? Is it going to be what we're experiencing now, record low rates, or is something going to change in the next five years? How do you see it? And I'll, I'll name the elephant in the room has to be surely printed money. The yeah. S&P 500 has gone up 6% per annum for the last 100 years. But since the GFC, since money printing started in a serious way, it's gone up 16.5% per annum. You've got stocks like Goldman Sachs is up 200% since the bottom of the pandemic. You've got Morgan Stanley's up 270% since the bottom of the pandemic, since the pre-pandemic high. So ignore the pandemic. In the last 18 months, you've got Goldman Sachs is up 65% and Morgan Stanley 75%. These are extraordinary uh, gains and they are the product of uh, printed money. The investment banks have been handed cheap money and been able to invest it in a stock market that has gone up in the US. It is the S&P 500, as we speak, is up 102% since the bottom of the pandemic. It's double. This is uh, this is heading some heading somewhere, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> let's let's hope it doesn't happen on our watch. But uh, in the next five years, I think something has to happen. Either the central banks will forever be zombifying the world and uh, printing money and supporting every dip that ever comes, or at some point the herd may take it into its own hands and there'll be an utter washout. If the central banks have their way, we are going to see um, in the next five years interest rates at zero, negative, perpetually. Prior to the GFC, we got some very clear signals, and one of them for me was the stockbroker I worked at, Patterson's, put its name on Subiaco Oval. Mm. <laughs> yes. Three stock brokers also listed in the year ahead of the GFC. So we're looking we're looking for the signs. I don't know what the signs are, but my daughter who is a rabid saver, uh, she's still got easter eggs from 12 years ago that she won't give her sisters. And she, she has recently gone, at the encouragement of her peers, gone and put 5,000 hard-saved dollars into the stock market and lost 1,200 bucks. I hope she put it into Poseidon. That's a sign. No, she didn't put it into Poseidon. She found a, a little gold stock to buy. No, there's a, there's, um, there's a track for young players as they say. Yeah, so we've got to be on the lookout, I think, for the for the science. Yes, you're right. Uh, there are not that many around at the moment, so we may survive a little bit longer. But uh, when, yeah. when, when you see, I think the classic uh, definition of a bubble is when the average man to the lowest common denominator gives up his trade to pursue speculation, and the average man to the lowest common denominator is making money, then you know you're in a bubble. I'm not quite sure we're there, but we're... we're... I, I, think we've, I think we've still got a little way to go, thankfully. I think. Uh, but I think it's probably worth us saying the advice to members is not to uh, predict some sort of disaster. It's to understand 
understand when we are sensitive to one and then when it starts to happen actually take some notice rather than just ignore it. So we are sitting here aware that the US market cap relative to GDP is, is at the highest it's ever been. Apparently, according to Mr. Buffett, I believe that's a significant relationship. Uh, we're also aware the CAPE ratio is the highest since the tech boom. The PE ratio is the highest since the tech boom. There are all sorts of reasons to suggest we are overpriced, but we don't need to do anything about it until it starts to happen, until that young dealer starts writing a lot of red tickets, then we start to... <laughs> we're going to wind this up here because we've been uh, we've been doing this for some time, and uh, I'm sure people are, are massively interested to hear our ramblings, but uh, maybe we'll save some for another time and, and so we can have a second episode of On the Couch. So thank you very much, Marcus, for joining me this afternoon on the couch, the virtual couch, and we will definitely do this again, and hopefully it will be of uh, use and some entertainment value to our regular listeners on the podcast. So thank you, Marcus, once again. Thanks, Henry.